Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And I there's only one cool suit, and I, I I want TK to wear it, so I I don't really have a slinger to pick. So I guess I'm just I'll be Hornet, sure. I mean, listen, I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X Nate X Gray X. But I will give you the ricochet suit. I feel like, yeah, my hair is probably going to do really well in that thing. But I'll fuck with a Dusk costume, which is like literally just living black, and just do that. I am thrilled to be talking about this book with you right now. TK, one of the most incredible things that we've done in this project is we've explored and experienced so many elements of the Marvel Universe and its ever-changing sort of ever reshaping view of what a character body idea is right like a like a character concept and one of the things that we've discussed a lot is the way that Marvel has tried to over the years both update existing characters and update concepts and how sometimes those things can be really at odds with one another in our last few weeks of discussion we've come across the slingers once or twice in discussion naturally and 13 or 14 times artificial forced by me and I could not believe what some of my research led me to and just how much this is the conversation we need to be having after Spider-Girl. This is also the 25th installment of our MC2 project and I'm so excited that we are going to be taking a look at a very different rebirth of the spider identity from right around the birth of Spider-Girl. So, you know, we decided to do MC2 because we wanted to talk about this line of comic books and from reading MC2 we really got that Tom DeFalco who had written a lot of Spider-Man had some ideas about what it takes to be a spider person and he put a lot of those ideas into the character of Mayday and sort of reflected the idea that it doesn't have to be Peter Parker. Peter Parker can pass these lessons on. Other people can embody Spider-Man as Spider-Girl, Spider-Woman, any number of things and that idea gets taken up by other writers. We talked about it a bunch in the Spider-Verse stuff. We kept going with the idea of a character like Spider-Man has core concepts that people can realize. And we looked at it when it came to a character like Wolverine in the form of X-23, of Rena, Wild Thing from MC2. And then we had a big deep dive when it came to Wolverina from What The? And that was when we really started getting into thinking about what defines the core of certain really in in this case really big name characters because these are the obvious ones to do spider-man and wolverine are two characters that you can you know put up on the chalkboard and say like what is a spider-man what is a wolverine what are the qualities that define those characters what are the big story arcs that helped you know what the definitions of those characters are and then from there it's really easy to look at the body of work and go what have people done to 
update the concept of that character? What have people done to, in the decades since the idea of with great power must come great responsibility, which, you know, beautiful idea, timeless perhaps, but it definitely harkens to an idea of heroism and crime stopping that is very mid 20th century. And since then, crime has really changed. Our ideas of good and evil have changed. So what have writers and creatives and editorial and Marvel, the company, done to continue to address the idea of with great power must come great responsibility as we've moved into the latter half of the 20th century and then the first half of the 21st century? And that brings us to Slingers. And to take another step and explore why we're looking at this, while Slingers itself is ultimately little more than like a speed bump in figuring out how to channel young spider characters, the actual Slingers event spun out of none other than Tom DeFalco's Amazing Spider-Man. There was a storyline called Identity Crisis. No, not the Identity Crisis you're likely to think of when you think of comics. (laughs) No, Spider-Man also had an Identity Crisis. This ran through the Spider titles from May to June of 1998. What's fascinating is I can't source an answer on this. The plot involves Spider-Man, while temporarily framed for murder by Norman Osborn and the Trapster, adopting four new identities, Hornet and Prodigy, Dusk and Ricochet, the former two as new heroes and the latter two as new criminals. And Peter used this as an opportunity to get better acquainted with some of the world of his rogues gallery, while also maintaining the presence of a spider like person in New York City. He used this combination identity to ultimately clear his name and funny enough, the Ricochet identity has like a whole bunch of stuff involved with Black Tarantula and that's what we picked up on in that issue. That's what we were starting with. All of the information he had discovered as Ricochet about Black Tarantula that led to that fight we read several months ago at the beginning of the end of Tom DeFalco's run. So, but the thing I can't find is if Slingers was the intention or if it was somebody said hey we've got these spider costumes they were designed let's do it I I don't know this is a real complicated chicken and the egg kind of thing the timing is right on the edge if somebody told you no we were always working up to Slingers the timing works out and if somebody told you we realized we had this stuff and that we could use it it's a little tight but it's totally believable and the effort they put into this is wild Hornet appears in the Sensational Spider-Man 27 through 28, Ricochet in The Amazing Spider-Man 434 and 435, Dusk in Peter Parker Spider-Man 91 and 92, and Prodigy in Spectacular Spider-Man 257-258. So, you know, if nothing else, they really, I mean, looking back, I can tell you all of these spider titles sound like the same fucking book. But, you know, there's a real effort to give a sense of this. And, you know, there was a period of time where these characters kind of had some appreciation. Actually, in Spider-Man Edge of Time, one of the video games, you could unlock the four characters as playable costumes. And then eventually Ricochet and Hornet also showed up in the Amazing Spider-Man 2 video game. But this event, Identity Crisis, really set up the idea that these costumes were the character. I don't know about the character 
characters, but I feel like I'm being told the visual is what's interesting here. And the other thing I wanted to point out and make reference to and wonder sort of what came about how is Dusk is the name of a black costume and Dusk is the name that we thought was going to be given to Normie in the symbiote. And so you have to ask yourself, was that like they had a really good character profile on a page or how did we get to where this two different characters named Dusk both set in the Spider-Verse both using shadowy powers based on previous character iterations how did this come to be? And you know while we're at it just oh, and this this one is totally like you know Dusk is very obvious and I think Ricochet is pretty clear too but Hornet is kind of parallel to the buzz. Yes I very much feel that way. I very much feel that Hornet is kind of the closest thing we have to uh, the buzz parallel down to like it's like a young hero who gets his start as part of like another hero thing. Wingsuit with a like insect noise like in the insect that makes noise or insect that noise that the insect makes name. I don't know it's uh it's there. It's there. I am really curious about how a lot of the timing worked out on this as well because something that stood out to me as I began doing my research on slingers and we're gonna get to some real fucking weird stuff but before we even get there something that caught my attention in a big way was the realization that slingers timing is pretty significant to our conversation now slingers originally had a sort of strange run and the first thing I want to say is the wizard exclusive number zero that we're going to discuss that we've been talking about wizard to make make sense that is kind of a separate thing to be talked about on its own but if we were to go by slingers number one that was released in october of 1998 what's really interesting is the same month that slingers number one hit the stands so did spider-man chapter one issues one and two a retelling of spider-man's youth additionally spider-girl three came out the same month as slingers number one there was a weird amount of effort being put into de-aging spider-man extensively at this point and it's a very having your cake and eating it too situation because peter parker in 616 continuity is staying the same age is staying married to mary jane it's not going to be for like another decade before an editor is like no we simply can't do this other stuff to make the spider-man brand younger we need to get rid of this marriage and like take spider-man back to his roots which is i think i think maybe i love spider girl and slingers because regardless of the fact that financially they didn't work the instinct to put young characters new young characters and youth as a concept in conversation with the values of spider-man regardless of how difficult that is always makes more sense to me than having Spider-Man make a deal with the devil that kind of conceptually de-ages him and having that be a thing that we're reckoning with for 20 years afterwards that takes away agency from his wife, children that he no longer will have, and him as a person with the ability to grow up and change in life. And that's something that we've talked about being a really important part of who Spider-Man should be, but it's growth that was stunted in the 2000s because of this idea of taking Spider-Man back to his roots. And this late 90s 
attempt at coming at youth and Spider-Man from a different angle really resonates with me because although it was not a success, I think creatively it is the only way to really do justice to the legacy of Spider-Man. And just to sort of talk about the Spider-Universe that we're looking at, you can't ever talk about Spider-Man without also discussing the bigger picture of the Marvel Universe. At any given time, it's sort of like what franchise is on top that day. And sure, some of it does have to do with films, but I also believe that in many ways, one of the bigger things we need to keep concept of is the significant amount of synergy that a corporation like this requires. For instance, when I take a look at the current Marvel lineup by using Comicron's sales figures for October of 1998, I see that the top 10 publishing sees no DC titles. In fact, the first DC book is JLA number 24, coming in at number 11. Instead, we see Fathom and Battle Chasers numbers 3 and 6, respectively, from Image in the top 10. The top two books were an unbelievable 130,000 plus selling Uncanny X-Men and X-Men. This is firmly in the Hunt for Xavier era, which, fun, but not the best remembered. We also have the Kurt Busiek, George Perez run of Avengers, the first issue of Avengers Forever, the second issue of Daredevil by Kevin Smith and Joe Quesada, Mutant X number three is inexplicably the 18th best-selling book of the month. I'm fucking flown by that. But here's where stuff gets really fucking crazy. We maintain that after like X-Man 24, no one gives a shit. We maintain that after the original team departs Generation X around Operation Zero Tolerance around like 25, 26, 27, that kind of era, no one cares anymore. That these are the points at which these books begin to tank off the planet. Yet for all of that, X-Force number 84, an issue that I am hard-pressed to believe even a decent-sized X-Force fan could identify by number, is at number 31, selling 55,000 copies. X-Man numbers 45 and 46 come in at positions 36 and 38, selling 51,000 copies each. And even Generation X is way up at number 28 on its 46th issue, selling 56,000 copies. Now, I just want to throw in, I said Spider-Girl number three came out this same month. Yeah, well, Spider-Girl number three had already fallen all the way down to number 29 and had sold the same number of copies roughly as Generation X, 43 issues sooner. I'm really trying to like wrap my head around the math here. The It's really crazy because there's certain things that we just kind of accept are hints or aren't hits. There are things that we just kind of say, oh, well, that was one of the biggest books. I got to be honest, by the time Preacher was on issue number 44 of 66, the title was selling 41,000 copies. And I thought to myself, wow, if Preacher is selling 41,000 copies, the book that gave birth to Preacher, Hellblazer, what was it doing at that time? Funny enough, that arc of Hellblazer is Son of Man. Son of Man is so funny, and it doesn't come up on this show much, but if there's something I do know as well as I know X-Men and Daredevil, it really is John Constantine Hellblazer. Like, I made that joke about I don't know that anybody can identify X-Force 84 by number, but I'm like, yo, give me any number John Constantine book. I'll tell you who did it. Like, I really love Hellblazer, even when it's bad, and plenty of it's pretty bad. And Hellblazer 132 is in Son of Man. It's Garth Ennis' awkward return that followed the Paul Jenkins run. The Paul Jenkins run, really, is a hard thing to discuss because 
because, you know, the whole thing about the Garth Ennis run is it's can John deal with his worst qualities? And, the, you know, the Paul Jenkins run involves the idea of dissolving yourself of your worst self and putting it somewhere you don't have to deal with it. So automatically you're talking about kind of if we're talking about totemic symbology, even if the Paul Jenkins run is good, it fails the totemic symbology exam, right? And here's this five issue run by Garth Ennis, which is ultimately followed by the canceled Warren Ellis run, which leads into the very divisive Brian Azzarello run. He fucks a dog in it. Like, I get why people have feelings, but I do still like that run in many ways. So anyway, Hellblazer is selling 21,000 copies at this point in 1999. We are quickly approaching Keanu Reeves's awkward turn is clearly not John Constantine in a film shortly after this before Shia LaBeouf is crazy and can't stop taking his penis out. So I don't know. I am just really trying to wrap my head around this world of comics. You know, Books of Magic is on 55. I promise you that's 51 issues after people stopped caring. Kabuki is on issue six. David Mack isn't even David Mack yet. He hasn't written or drawn his first issue of Daredevil. And Kabuki is selling almost as well as Hellblazer. And then we still have other crazy things. Like this is still an era where we're getting things like Baby's first Deadpool book, which sold only 17,000 copies. Encyclopedia Deadpoolica, which sold 19,000 copies. And I sort of can't imagine a world where I see issues of Deadpool like that selling below Generation X Dracula Annual 1998, which came in at number 72, selling 35,000 copies. So I think the thing that was ringing to me with the numbers that we were going over and just kind of what I wanted to rein in for myself is it's 1998 and an X book that is doing the best is selling less than 150,000 copies in October of 1998. That is the top seller of that month. If we go two years before to October of 1996, the top two books are X-Men books and they're both selling over 200,000 apiece. My point just being that like we are watching the slow decline of sales for the industry and we're still seeing numbers that would impress us today being put up, but year to year, they are staggeringly less. And I just what counts as a success for a new title coming out of nowhere in 1998 versus what we would accept. And I'm taking 1996 because there's a period in there where we don't have great Marvel numbers where I think we would be seeing even a higher sales from an X-Men book. It's really sort of nuts to me that a lot of these titles are doing the best they're ever going to do. And they just could not hold a candle to the early to mid nineties boom of comic sales. And when we try and consider the world of comics that 1999 was one of the big things that occurs to me is 1999 was the world of comics that was having trouble being taken seriously we were you know for as much as x-men was making a crazy ton of money in theaters and blade was making money in theaters you know as much as we had films comic books were still kind of you know i don't know i feel like as somebody who has been going to comic con since he was a little kid there was definitely still at this time a 
big sense of like pushing up your glasses, fixing your pocket protector and hoping that you didn't get picked on was like the sort of projection of what somebody into comics was. But yeah, I was in middle school at this point. And I think one of the things that really defined my experience was it wasn't lame kids that read comics. Like everyone read comics. My super cool, super jock cousin who was on the football team and the wrestling team read comics. It wasn't like some nerd thing. Yet we're still seeing kind of like these huge numbers for comics back then that we're not really seeing now that everyone's a comic geek. It's a really fascinating thing to try and rectify to understand the past of comics and their future from this moment. It's, you know, Kevo said to me the other night, did you ever think that you would be in the same week watching Daredevil have sex with She-Hulk and then Elsa Bloodstone in a Werewolf by Night special? (laughs) Even one year ago, could you have projected that D plus Marvel Universe? The answer is no. Absolutely. Let al- yeah, let alone trying to figure out what the- this is 25 years ago. And I mean, I think it's it's something that we see in the stories themselves. But yeah, I mean, like for boomers and Gen X, I think the nerd that read comic books was a real thing. And then they think that that person aged into comic book guy from The Simpsons. And maybe for their generation, to a certain degree, they're right. Maybe that is a very popular stereotype that a lot of them saw occur a lot. But nobody, I think you are correct insofar as nobody was noticing that for millennials, the people that are reading comics as kids in the 90s, that's not who's reading comics. Yeah, I mean, it was, for me, I come from a weird area, so it was slightly different insofar as not everybody read them, but it wasn't nerds who read them. It was like, it was a bunch of different types of people, The like most that you could say about them in that sort of they are nerds is that it was like kind of the weirder kids, the sci-fi kids, the the kids that were but like I was one of those kids and I played a lot of sports. For where I was, I was very social. It was just a different thing for us. And I think that identity of, you know, comics as being a lot more universal and that carrying through to today where that universality does not contribute to sales of actual comics. I think that comes from the fact that so many of us were reading them when we were, you know, 20, 30 years ago when we were kids and have kept a vague familiarity, a cultural understanding of what is happening with comic book properties. Maybe like for uh, some people pick up like their most favorite thing, Batman or Daredevil or like one X-Men book, but they're not buying them like we are where, you know, every Wednesday I'm up at five, I've got my list ready to go and I know what I'm reading. But there's a familiarity there that is a lot more universal, even if the sales are not in the same way. And I think that's really important to consider for people definitely under 50 and probably about 40 and under. It's shocking, too, because if you asked me to compare the last issue of Slingers (laughs) World, September 1999 to 1998, September 1998, that same time, there's really no fucking difference. September 99, the top two books are Uncanny X-Men and X-Men, which have fallen a good 30,000 copies each, but the general trend has fallen about 40,000 copies. Like there's a a good 60% sales maintenance, but like it's about 40% off of the previous year. And there's very little difference. DC has one book in the top 10 and it is JLA. While it does seem like a lot of the indie books have fallen down quite a bit, we're seeing Earth X, which has started in this time since, but a lot of the books are still the 
same. Uncanny, X-Men, Spawn, Avengers, Wolverine, Daredevil. A lot of these titles are remaining pretty high up. Something I will say is crazy is Amazing Spider-Man is on issue 11. And then the ugh, Day of Judgment. All right. So the other thing that I guess I'm pretty big into at DC is Green Lantern. And nothing makes me as angry as having to talk about Hal Jordan. Like you can actually ask TK. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, Green Lantern's my favorite thing in the world, except Hal Jordan is my least favorite character in all of comics. It's true. So Day of Judgment is not my favorite event. But what I do want to say is that somehow Mutant X is still selling 52,000 fucking copies. And like that's that's a really great example because that's not amazing even now for X books, but that is still yeah. a lot a copy you know for something that is actually like legitimately bad, not connected to anything. Really makes no sense. What the point of it is is unclear. It is not in any way reflective of the television series, which has the same name but doesn't contain any of the same characters or like any resembling continuity. It. It's it's not Age of Apocalypse style alternate universe. It is just this weird pocket universe title that the pocket universe isn't really even that cool. So like, yeah, that's not really that impressive compared to other X books. But the fact that it's selling any copies is insane, let alone more than 50,000. Speaking of insane alternate universe is selling a ridiculous number of copies. Preach. Spider Girl. <laughs> Spider Girl's fucking still bringing down 39,000 copies at issue 14 with wild thing not very far behind at 38,005 she's still doing okay it is insane to me to say that this month the best-selling title of the mc2 universe was fantastic five at 40,000 copies unfucking real hard to take seriously but you know when we talk about how these books are or aren't hits i just want to say that preacher is still hanging in at position 60 selling about 40,000 copies on its 55th issue it's got about a year of publishing Left. And I just bring up Preacher because there was a period of time where for better or for worse, you know, I am a I'm unfortunately a Garth Ennis person and it's such a hard thing to it's like really hard to be a good person and also like Garth Ennis, but you try and find a way to do both. And, you know, and that's just a joke about how incredibly offensive so much of his 90s work is. I've had the pleasure of meeting Garth Ennis and I don't know that I made an actual human noise. I think I just kind of squeaked a couple of times, just kind of like, ah! and he just signed my books. Um, But I bring up Preacher because it's such a significant cornerstone of comics culture in the 90s and all said and done when it was over it was just one of those things like oh it's over oh okay but you know at the time it seemed really important but like there's still other things worth considering and worth noting like all said and done kind of the anti-preacher Promethea was on its fourth issue at position 80 selling 35,000 copies you know I think we still talk critically about Promethea at this point we still consider how valuable Promethea is as an example of discussing society. I'm looking at three different pieces of Promethea art in my home as we record this, just to to be clear. Yeah, and it's also of note that at this time, issue 11 of Web Spinner's Tales of Spider-Man is also coming out, which means since Slingers began, another book called Web Spinner 
years, <laughs> Tales of Spider-Man began and has already tanked. So the world of comics we're looking at. Oh, by the way, Hellblazer is on 143. That's the last sort of of this weird fill in time that nobody was really sure what was going on. The writer left really abruptly and that sold about Jesus sold like 19,000 copies. Uh, You know, the final issue of Slingers when it came out only charted at 147 that month. So, you know, before we get into the actual hard numbers, it's just really hard sometimes to understand how comics look from in the moment after the fact. I told Nico when we were going over sales today that, you know, he sent me a link to the month that issue number one of Slingers came out and then the month that issue 12 came out. And you go to the page for issue one and it's right up there. It's like in the first, it's in the top 10. Uh, you, You find it like as soon as you start scrolling on the page. And I went to the month for the last issue of Slingers and I said, I'm gonna scroll down until I find it because you know the first one is like it's way high up there and so you know I know I've been I've been doing this for a while now I've been doing covering failing spider adjacent books so you know I'm thinking okay it's been 12 like you know I know it's definitely probably fi- at least 50% so I'm scrolling down now to try to get to you know like 75,000 or less and I was just really scrolling down to get there and it's not there and I'm thinking okay so you know then it's less than 50,000 would be really devastating. And I scrolled to 50,000 and it's not there. And I just, okay, so like 25,000, that's just, that's terrible. It's not at 25,000. <laughs> and I'm just scrolling and scrolling down to try and find this one entry for Slingers number 12. And ultimately it sold like just over 18,000 copies, which is just I mean, well over a hundred thousand less than issue number one to me is real ugly and real sad. And just watching this giant chasm of books between the top and where Slingers is go by and like having read some of them at the time, having read some of them after being very familiar with how much bad quality stuff there is that is selling better. It, there are a lot of forces at play, and I love that we talk to you guys about our opinions on the book, what we connected with, what we think resonated in terms of bigger pictures of character concepts and all that stuff. But I really love that we talk about the numbers, too, because there have been some books that I think I have thought were the height of comic book writing for their era that are in, like, the 12,000 copies range. And, you know, writing the best comic that has ever been printed is no guarantee of sales. And it's just really important that we keep that in mind, because I think people will often try and browbeat you when you say something is really great because it didn't sell well. And I think sometimes people will try and tell you this thing that sold well is obviously good because it sold well. Or, you know, this idea that you have is not going to be a seller. So it's a bad idea. Just, you know, it's a complicated dance to publish a book and it has more to just do more to do with all of the factors coming together than just, you know, quality or sellability. Because when I look at some other stats that I think are worth mentioning, Technically, Slingers was the worst performing Marvel book featuring a Marvel character that month. The only two new books which sold worse than Slingers was the final Conan miniseries for the t- 
time came in 177th selling 15,000 copies and then there was a Hulk reprint those are the only two things at Marvel that sold worse than Slingers and technically neither one was fully original work it's also hard for me not to maybe let my eyes wander around to some other titles I care about and I might have dipped down a little bit further and just for a a thing to discuss I made a joke that Books of Magic by issue 40 something who the fuck cared and I mean I cared I mean Blake of Blake's Buzz and I we constantly go on and on about Books of Magic and the Books of Magic omnibus editions that DC did and there's a tie-in Book of Fairy Molly's story it's an amazing little entry in the bigger canon and you know Peter Gross who would go on to be Mike Carey's creative partner on a number of titles did a stunning job writing and drawing a significant number of the Books of Magic stories and then getting fill-in art that he would continue to write by Temujin which was also brilliant so like it's a really cool time to be a fan of Books of Magic historically like if you're looking at the work but like Books of Fairy Molly's story is like famously one of it was so poorly selling that they cancelled the other Books of Fairy stores because this sold so bad and it came in at 15,500 copies and 171st place interestingly enough a book that would go on to define an era of comic fandom 100 Bullets is at 184th place with its fourth issue selling 14,000 copies it's just really interesting to see how the era of comics we're talking about they're trying to redesign and redress Spider-Man as the Slingers and as Spider-Girl and as Web Spinner's Tales of Spider-Man and Spider-Man Chapter 1 and Amazing Spider-Man Number 1 and they're constantly trying to rebirth this idea and meanwhile DC is over at Vertigo crafting the stories that would go on to basically invent the HBO format and that disconnect between understanding reported sales, what was popular, and what ultimately is remembered. I mean, if you told somebody that Slingers 12 outsold 100 Bullets 4, they would just laugh in your face. Yep, I think that's 100%. I think for one thing, they would go, what the fuck is Slingers? 100 Bullets is amazing. And that's the that's the complex relationship. So much of the, I think, mentality of discussing these books is dealing with the complex agenda that is comics. To an extent, one of the things that you always need to do is be thinking about the bigger picture of your legacy. How is what you're creating now going to be perceived later on? And I think with Spider-Man, one of the things that happened that didn't happen at Vertigo, Vertigo didn't really care. All of those things were just wacky ass ideas. And pretty quickly, after ideas got vertigized, right? After things got, you know, Karen Bergerd, if it didn't work out they just went right back over to dc proper no one was any the worse off for it but everything spider was still this sacred creature that you couldn't touch wrong that you couldn't you couldn't corrupt the spider brand because it couldn't be recovered if you did and i think that's part of what so horribly strangleholded or strangleheld stranglehold the spider franchise at this time and it would take the jms run being like no, no spiders are magical totem creatures to really get it going again you know and on the one hand you say that on the other like peter parker is teflon we can't do anything that sticks to peter but we can make a, an entire other universe that has its own imprint to create a daughter for peter so that we can do daughter stories we can create a 12 issue series about four people wearing costumes that peter wore that embody with great power must come great responsibility like we can fuck around with spider-man ideas a lot at 
this time till the JMS run. And then the, somehow the spell is broken and the floodgates open and we get to one more day and, you know, Peter can make a deal with the devil and erase his own marriage to save a geriatric woman who has to be near death anyway, but setting that aside. It's just, it's very funny the way these things shift for different creative forces. And, you know, uh, like I said, to the point about just sales and what is written, I think we approach this both as readers and people who love these stories and are just curious about what happened, but also as creatives who want to release our own products into this world. And I think we're speaking to readers, but also to people like us who are also creatives. And I do always just like to drill that point home that like, you're going to face this one day that you are going to create something that is a brilliant quality product for you that you think represents what you are trying to say and do. And it's going to sell like shit. And that doesn't mean you haven't created something great. And you're going to create something that sells amazingly well. And that maybe is not your best work. That maybe is not the thing to try and recreate a second time. We're all just kind of fucking fumbling around in the dark trying to do the best that we can with the information that we have and the motivation that we have to do the creative work in front of us. Because before we can even get to it, I am going to say that for me, Slingers as a concept, as a look, as a style, as a vibe, as a movie starring a disaffected cast a la Scream (laughs) is the coolest fucking thing to ever come out of the Spider Office, but the 13 issues we got are not very good. Yeah, I mean, I I really think you're right about that. Like, it's, I, there's something really special about this conceptually, and you are, you'll sit in panels and moments and be like, fuck yeah, and then you turn the page and you go, what the fuck? Oh god, and now I gotta read the rest of this issue. What the fuck is happening? What is this artwork? I'm so confused as to what is happening in this story right now. Do people talk like that? Did they talk like that in the 90s? I don't, ooh, that looks really cool. And you just kind of keep jaw open staring at this book trying to figure out what's going on. Because it's a weird jump. Like there's panels that feel like Alan Ball's American Beauty. And then there's panels that feel like Jim Varney's Ernest Scared Stupid. And I just feel like the pull in both directions is really showcased in the sales on this motherfucker. We talked a little bit about them. Now, first things first, the requisite reading, the literally the book makes no sense without it. The I can't, it's like trying to talk Twin Peaks without the Laura Palmer pilot, without the murder itself slinger zero was not sold in stores it was a giveaway with an issue of wizard now admittedly this was not one of the 1495 sendaways this was included with wizard i don't know wizard circulation numbers but I, I i just don't feel comfortable hazarding them either i can say though that slingers number one's 105,000 copies gets an enormous okay but attached to it when i opened slingers number one i was like oh right these four fucking cool covers oh shit I forgot they did these four covers and each one showcased two different characters and then the other two were on the sides and I'm looking at it and you know I picked up the Ricochet one because like I really physically like Ricochet's look and I'm a big fan of the loners Excelsior and I'm a runaways guy you know Nico Nico hey what's up and I'm enjoying the Ricochet one he kind of reminds me of this guy over here so I really enjoy it and then I'm realizing this issue is like written for me because it's so Ricochet heavy. This is really what I'd wanted. You know, maybe though, maybe one of the covers has like a like a fold out where I can look at all of the covers. Sure. And so I look at the other issues and that's when I realize, oh my god, the cover character is the narrator of 
of like 12 of that issue's pages. They released four different covers that were four different versions of Slinger's number one. So there are four issues that are each, what is it, like 26 pages? Yes. Okay. The complete number one, which is none of the repeat repeat pages and all of the pages from the four that like tell the complete story, that's 96 pages total. So your standard number one of all of this is 96 pages. And then in order to get that complete story, you are dealing with well over 12 pages per issue that are just repeats. And all of it is a direct response to the events of Slinger's Zero, which was not available in the comic shop when you got there to buy Slinger's number one. So I'm actually a little bit more comfortable saying you really need to read Zero and all four versions of number one. And that means you have a 112 page buy-in on the initial story. That that's longer than Marvel graphic novel number four, The New Mutes. And it's difficult to acquire and confusing. So it's more than just the reading. It's the actual acquisition and understanding. <laughs> you gotta work for Slingers, man. And I feel like that's shown in the reaction. Now, the whole series is written by Joseph Harris. He wrote 0, 1A through 1D, and 2 through 12. It's also of note that Marvel has never made this book available any other way. So we had to, like get our hands on copies somehow. The series is not reprinted, with the exception of issue zero is reprinted in Ben Riley, Scarlet Spider, Trade Paperback Volume 2, Death's Sting from 2018, containing Ben Riley, Scarlet Spider 4 through 9's primary stories, as well as Slinger's Zero, because it saw a Slinger's reunion, and the art is pretty inconsistent. Adam Polina did Slinger's Zero, again, the pinnacle story that sets up the series is it not even by the series main artist what were they doing they had adam polina on pencils jimmy palmiotti on inks and kevin tinsley on colors with letters by richard starking's comic crafts liz agroforis now joseph harris and liz agroforis were the creative team throughout and as far as i could tell the colors were consistently by felix serrano throughout however the series saw pencils from Chris Cross. At along with inks from Rob Stull on issues 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 9, and 10, while Oscar Jimenez, Greg Lizniak, and Javier Saltares filled out the pencil duties with Eduardo Alapuente, Jimmy Palmiotti, Bob Almond, and Rich Parada on inks. So not even a very consistent creative team, and man, do the sales show that. Number one has 105,000 copies. Number two has 44,000 copies. Number three, 34,000. We see a quick plummet before the series closes out at about 19,000 copies, never beating 30,000 copies again after the fourth issue. That's not even six months into the series cycle. That's abysmal. It only surprises me because it is pretty fucking cool. Just conceptually, it's cool. Ricochet is cool. And the art, the art weakens after that, those first number ones and it gets into kind of a muddy, muddied place by issue three or maybe it's four. But there is some really good art and like the characters and costumes respond really well to the different creative teams. 
it's the story that has some trouble with it. It just surprises me that at that time, people weren't a little more sold on the characters. And again, I think that goes back to kind of like the whole thing I started the episode with. The We were told the costumes are what's cool, not the characters. We were told, oh, it's Ricochet. That was what was cool, not Johnny Gallo. And look, I'm not going to do it again, but you all need to know that every time I say Johnny Gallo, I just think the brown bunny. It's, it's automatic. That last name is ruined for me forever. I mean, it's really so. great because uh, the dad feels like a Gallo level sleaze. So uh, I know I knew uh, we were going to get there. I had to I had to start early. I know that is like a dream man yeah. for you. <laughs> that hurts. So I want to point out that uh, Joe Harris, the guy who wrote this, has a phenomenal career throughout Marvel, DC, Image, Dynamite, an extensive amount of work on Chris Carter's projects like X-Files and Millennium. But really, his time of great power at Marvel was 1998 to 2001, in which his name is attached to some of the most unfucking believable projects I can imagine. This is the guy who did the Generation X holiday special. He also did the 1998 annual, and while he did a number of less notable things like X-Factor 147 and X-Force 77 and 101, I would think he's pretty notable for writing Uncanny X-Men 358, the issue that introduces the Bishop and the Last X-Man story that then continues through Bishop and the Last X-Man 1 through 15. This is the guy that would go on to write X-Men Liberators and X-Men The Search for Cyclops. That's... I guess what gets me there is those are like great X-Men examples of really cool concepts with pretty mediocre execution. Yeah, I mean, I'm no great big fan of Search for Cyclops having nothing to do with even the execution of the writing. I just don't think there was a vision there. Yeah. All said and done. But it's funny because it is a similar thing. Like there are some really cool aesthetic moments in Search for Cyclops. And there's stuff that I'm like, I could see why somebody would... Would be interested in buying that on site alone and then be very disappointed when they get through. And it's such a funny thing because I feel we often don't really talk about the search for Cyclops. We kind of acknowledge it, but we tend to just move past it. It's not a story that a lot of people spend too much time on. And funny enough, I think that's actually kind of the curse of many of of Joe Harris's titles at Marvel. You might mention them, but I just don't feel like they carry the sort of weight they deserve. Search for Cyclops is a really great example of like... We all remember that it happened and we want every person that gets into X-Men mythology to know that it happened, but we don't feel that you need to read it. And I maybe am like now sort of starting to preach the gospel of everybody needs to know about Slingers, but I'm not necessarily going to say that everybody needs to read Slingers. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to throw out there for a minute. Crisscross is going to make us jump, jump. And but the other thing, not being a dick, is that he actually has kind of a cool career at Marvel. He did the Captain Marvel series that featured Genisvel and did the X-Man Hulk annual, but also, kind of fun, did a story in the Marvel Voices Legacy issue from 2011 featuring Miles Morales, and it's always really great when an artist of color gets to do a story for a character of color, so it's so great that Chris Cross, uh, real name Chris Williams, came out of like semi-Marvel retirement to do that story. I think that's really special.
man, I'm just so staggered trying to talk about this book because I just couldn't even find a lot of information on it. There's just not a lot of stuff out there about it, which is why I was lucky enough, and I mean lucky enough, to come across Ricochet's Slinger page at slingers1.tripod.com. And I'm not being any kind of sarcastic when I say this webpage is a history lesson in what early internet portal work was like and how hard it was to get like a consistent amount of information, which is why frequently for years, certain things were popular and certain facts. But if they were on an unpopular site or perhaps a low res site that doesn't look so strong, people might not have paid a whole lot of attention to it. Now, this site, I am in no way making fun of it, like, but it really is a time capsule and it's kind of cringe. It's web 1.0. Like we just, we have very different standards and expectations now. You know, back in the day, we were pretty comfortable coming across a GeoCity site, an Angel Fire site, a tripod site, and it was kind of this very flat, static, you know, there was no cascading style sheets. There was no, it was just inline HTML defining all of the styles. So the, the background is just black. The colors are just, you know, what the font colors are whatever you have assigned them. And, you know, there's nothing is dynamic. Nothing responds to the particular screen that you're reading on. All stuff that we really take for granted now. Yes, if you go and look at this, it is tough to look at now. Not because anybody has done anything wrong, just because our standards really change really fast and the technology changed really fast. So it was very easy to create a website that has design standards that conforms to design standards we just didn't have back then. We found a few of these when it came to doing MC2 research as well. You know, just stuff that was published when these books were coming out, that was put online when these books were coming out and just hasn't really been taken down since. It's the classic, the original Space Jam website, which I think finally had to come down after they started doing uh, the second Space Jam movie. But for years, since 1996, Space Jam website stayed up online. It was exactly the same. It was just a flat, static Web 1.0 site. And, you know, the thing that all of these websites have is just like some block of text and images that... It just doesn't conform to, in the same way that the design doesn't conform to current standards, the writing doesn't conform to current standards. There's no even attempt at anything clickbaity or, you know, nobody's trying to get their numbers up because we just didn't have those same concerns back then. It really, there is an innocence and a sincerity to late 90s websites about comic books that is just, at worst, opinions that maybe you don't agree with, but like really people are just trying to get the information that they think is best that they have available to them out there. One of the things that I want to point out is I'm definitely not making fun. I love the simplicity of the site. And I'm only saying I'm not making fun because it could sound like I'm like, oh, this dinky site. No, it's a site that, according to the login, hasn't been updated since 1999. Seriously, the last update was October 7th. And we're recording this October 9th, which is just fucking amazing. But the last update on this website was just over 23 years ago. But the fact that I was even able to find this means everything to me because it has a news item. And it says, Dear Gods, no, the sad news was reported in today's Mania Newsarama. Holy shit. There was something Newsarama before Newsarama.com was Newsarama. That's amazing. It says, read it and weep. Marvel's advanced solicitation for September shipping comics are out and the publisher has announced that two first-year series, Joseph Harris and Chris Cross Slingers and Eric Larson and Joe Bennett's Nova are ending with issues 12 and 7 respectively. Newsarama 
drama caught up with both Harris and Larson for the reaction to the cancellations. Said Harris, After looking into various options to keep the series alive and profitable at all, Marvel has decided to end the series. In light of other cancellations, I guess I should consider us relatively lucky to have lasted as long as we did. Along with Chris Cross, Rob Stull, Felix Serrano, Ruben Diaz, Zenit Safran, and the rest of the creative staff, I think we were able to create a book about real kids struggling with power, responsibility, love, and death in larger-than-life settings of the Marvel Universe. We did what we set out to do. It was never easy, and we succeeded, but it didn't sell. But our fans are the best. We don't get the most mail in the bag, it's true. But it's spirited stuff. Slingers has enjoyed a cult following, at best. But its members seemed to turn into diehards as the past year rolled on. I don't think that there are many casual Slingers fans out there. You either seem to love this book, or you couldn't care less. Unfortunately, in this market, cult don't cut it too long. We were given every opportunity to find an audience. Marvel has been great in at least trying to expand our readership. I don't remember if I've ever seen a house ad with a quote hyping the writer before in a Marvel comic. To say I was flattered is an understatement. And then he goes on to talk about how the series closes out and how he was ultimately not sure if he would be allowed to run through issue 12, which was his original ending. But even if he were allowed to, which he was, he would have to cut the double-sized 12th issue to a single um, size issue, which he did. And the last quote he said is, in light of the current state of the industry, I should probably be happy we lasted as long as we did. I'm moving on to Bishop the Last X-Man, as well as some other comic projects and some really cool movie projects. I'm heartbroken over this. Like I said, we tried. And who knows, two years from now, given the revival trend sweeping the scene these days, maybe we'll get back together for a very Slingers reunion episode. I've already got it outlined. And man, I hate that I'm romanticizing this book so hard, but I am so fucking grateful to Slingers1.tripod, Ricochet Slinger page for being able to make this possible. You know, in 1999, when I was 13 years old, running parallel to this human being who was doing this, and I might have even looked at this page back then because I used to look at Slinger stuff, even though I didn't read it as a kid. And turns out this guy actually created graphics for all of the other Slingers pages in the Slingers web ring. What a nice guy. What an early example of comic community. And holy shit, that Joe Harris quote is worth the entire program. I There's nothing better than going to a secondary source of the era like this. Because, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that you said that I think this is all stuff that we could have read at the time. You, I think you and I were both pretty active online. And it's just, it was a very one-way experience. The, you know, it was, there was no Twitter, man. Like, it's just so tough to, even like, even if you're listening and you were there, it's tough for us all to remember, like, the degree to which the interaction was not as fluid and back and forth as it is today. And you really were just like, because if you missed an issue of Wizard, or if you you miss something on Newsarama or Ain't It Cool or wherever you were looking, you weren't necessarily getting that stuff back. There just weren't the same archives. Um, and so you kind of had to rely on the fact that consistent fans like this would get on their tripod website and publish whatever information they had. Some, A lot of it is going to be redundant for you, but some of it is just going to be stuff that you didn't have. And then if you're very lucky, it stays up like this as a time capsule for people like us to find. And yeah, maybe we romanticize a little bit because like this type of reporting on what goes on in comics doesn't happen anymore and 
I don't really think stories like this happen anymore. They definitely don't happen in the same way. And it's maybe only just now that we're seeing a new version of something like Slingers being able to happen because of a service like Unlimited. And, you know, I feel like people are young, new creators and old creators that have sort of smaller stories to tell, stuff that's obviously not going to sell gangbusters, are just now, after decades, finding with the big two opportunities to publish these weird little stories that nobody knows where they'll go, the characters aren't familiar, and a lot of times they don't do super well, and we have to forget about them, but we're finding opportunities to just test things out, and hopefully through that, have sort of a a chance to incubate and grow these interesting new ideas, and I feel like, while I mean, one of the things that I think we'll return to throughout talking about this is how I would love to see Slingers updated, revisited, all of that stuff. I would also love to see what somebody's version of Slingers in 2022, something that you would put on Marvel Unlimited, what would that be today? I think the heart of Slingers was an attempt to craft the multifaceted look of what a Spider fan might look like then. By the time we're talking about, we are coming up on you know our concept of Totem, our concept of the limitless, almost refractory ways you can look at Spider-Man. And we're seeing it, you know, in this year, we had so many Spider-Man number ones, so many relaunches, so many restarts, and then we're going to get Magic Spider-Man any minute now. And the overall vibe that I think they tried to do with Slingers was give you a bunch of different takes on Spider-Man, but the problem is they were all still the same disaffected white guy, and it would take a woman like Mayday or a young man of color like Miles Morales. And of course, Peter in Ultimate, definitely, definitely, I am not trying to undersell that current. But in terms of reimagining the spider line, it would certainly take a huge feat to break free of this humdrum, same sort of white guy whining character. I think that we're starting with issue zero, Wizard, Marvel Comics. It says free right on it. With great power must come great responsibility, Slingers. And this cover, I want to say, first of all, there is a really interesting vibe to every character on this cover. Hornet has this big, goofy smile, which is really sweet and kind of vaguely Hornet, I guess. Uh, Prodigy is so fucking huge. This guy is a fucking wall of mountain. I don't even know what I knew, to say. This, Listen, all, this is another thing we're going to get into for the entire thing, which is just the repeated refla- refrain of that wrestling scene. And I know you had thoughts. Oh, oh, did I ever? And <laughs> Prodigy is just astronomically large. And by that, I mean, he specifically verges on deformed. He's so big. Like he looks to me a little bit like Beta Ray Bill in a spawn cape. <laughs> And that's not really human. I don't know. I mean, like it, it with the suit on, it is it tends to go a little bit extreme. I really did think that I mean, basically what we're getting at is there is a depiction of Richie, the 
dude in the prodigy costume. This all these these people all go to college together, and Richie's on the wrestling team, and they keep showing you different angles of this wrestling match and the aftermath of the wrestling match. And he just looks really fucking good. He looks really big, and it's just you know as we get into this, I think we all have to accept that one day Nico is going to do prodigy cosplay, and I'm going to do ricochet cosplay, and that's just if you meet the two of us, it's comparable in a lot of ways. I don't have white hair but give me time and that's actually something i want to say about ricochet specifically on this cover something that i think could have never existed at this time but is definitely a part of our culture now is the shades of queer masculinity and lack of masculinity in all of the ways that deserve celebration whether you are sissy queen femme bitch or you are the butchest motherfucking masculine guy ever it doesn't really matter the queer spectrum has room for you just make sure that none of it is particular toxic and there is something very queer about everything ricochet every pose and especially this cover he's basically looking over his own ass like he's playing a kylie minogue song and and he's almost wearing assless chaps they're boots that go up to his butt that don't connect to the pants but they might as well so they're basically assless chaps and they really accentuate the butt and the sort of you can't see my face in the specific way you can't see his face prodigy being covered I actually think gives him a slightly inhuman look and his name kind of means nothing which works for him he is just this big scary monster can I just I kind of thought he would have been black under his costume just like honestly that there was no black character in this was shocking to me because of what is problematic about every character it prodigy being black would have essentially in a lot of ways kind of made him the villain it would have been rough for prodigy to be black given where you get to by issue five and the fact that the the person who gave them these names i and there's there's more to talk about i think it'll be difficult for prodigy to be black i think the fact that all four of these people are just like your standard white dude and then one girl who i love how every description of dusk is like goth queen (laughs) they all specifically mention that she's goth like it is an ethnicity Yeah, when all she really is is just a Dolores O'Riordan fan. People, that is in fact correct. Goth is an ethnicity. It is a heritage. Find your roots. Yeah, just that that is the only like notable description of anybody is that this one girl is goth. But, you know, I feel like people would have had a problem with, you know, I mean, I think Hornet might be the best one, but I think the fact that he is disabled might have made people feel like so we can only have a black character if they are in some way like kind of hobbled. I agree. There is a real sense of all of these characters operate at a pretty immediate disadvantage in the cultural landscape of 1998's ability to express the human experience. So the idea of Hornet's disability in 1998's comic world, he might has he might as well have been Martian Manhunter trying to fit in with other fellow youths. Like it just you might as well be from another dimension and that ricochet is ultimately hiding that he's a mutant oh well you might as well be gay and another reason i think he's kind of gay i was gonna say it's he is he comes off as very gay and he is a mutant and his mutant identity is and, and the struggle in this book is a queer identity struggle 
and his powers are faggy. Like, yes, he's a gymnast. Like that's yeah. faggy powers. No, don't yeah. get me wrong. I know some he can real throw masculine it back. Hot, yeah, he can throw it back supernaturally. Well, is his mutant ability, and that we ultimately find out that, as you pointed out, Prodigy is sort of in someone's pocket would play into some really ugly tropes where you know young black men are very rarely allowed to stand for themselves in 1998's comic world. So plus the dude looks like John Waters and his name is Black Marvel. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he kind of does look like John Waters. All right. Yeah. It's like, it, there's just a lot of choices here. They're all cool in and of themselves. It, they are exclusionary because what it means is none of these people really should be any person of color because people of color at this time get so little representation that to have them be these people, all of whom are flawed in ways that just slightly go beyond, oh, we're all flawed. And like, you know, we should depict black people who are flawed. We should depict gay people that are flawed these flaws are like a little bit rough but because we have so few care it's a damned if you do damned if you don't situation and it is just the one thing that i would rethink about this if i could go back in time or if i could redo this now Something I would also redo is I feel very much that Dusk is going to be taken off the board is heavily accentuated by how easily she like can be pulled out of this graphic image. Like if they complete Prodigy's cape, then we are immediately in a position to use this image simply without Dusk. Yeah, I mean, this is another one of those things that like, I get what they were going for. She's a cool concept for a character insofar as like she's kind of got the Psylocke post Crimson Dawn powers of like traveling through shadows and dusk it like drops into a singularity and there's there's negative zone stuff in the mix for her powers. But like when you understand that that's what's happening and when they really get into her groove, you know, Cloak is another great example. The powers are cool. The power signature is cool. She seems kind of scary and super powerful and like she could really fuck shit up. But from an iconographic standpoint, in an issue zero that is almost entirely about visuals and then four number ones that are repeating the exact same pages and panels over and over again and then giving you very little else it's not enough for her that the concept is cool and can do cool visual stuff with some lead-in time like we do need to hit the ground running a little bit and there's not a lot of room for her to do that so yeah she comes off as pretty forgettable it also um they spend the whole issue basically telling her to kill herself and then she does. And it's one of the strangest things. I had a conversation with somebody one time and they said something like, you know, people who say they're going to hurt themselves never do. And I'm like, yeah, what about Chris Cornell? And they're like, well, that was just songs. And I'm like, you mean all of those cries for help that he wrote and then recorded? Elliot screaming? Smith. Yeah. I mean, like literally, this is such a trope of 90s-ism. Well, then do it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's shitty, but it's... It's a thing that we saw a lot as a storytelling beat, which is gross. I can see what they're doing. Like the whole idea is they're just trying to leap between buildings, a standard superhero move, and they all have powers or suits that should let them do it. So Dusk, you should be able to do it too. The only way all four of us can be superheroes is if we can jump the chasm between these two buildings. Makes sense. In the 60s, they would just have done it. Somebody would have been scared and somebody else would have come in and been like, you're going to do it. 
Jimmy and they we would have jumped it and then that's how the X-Men are created or what the fuck ever. In the 90s, we have to be edgy and so the girl is goth and the leap is like not super certain and she like very much does not think she can do it, which is funny because of all of them, she's like, she can bend space and could absolutely fucking do it, but she just doesn't have access to her powers yet. So they are essentially like, try and do this thing that you clearly think you're going to fail at and we don't, if you fail, you should die and if you can't do it you're useless to us it really is just like egging her on to suicide as an updated version of like try and come into contact with your power it just feels so weird i really can't justify it i want to because i see what this book is doing and how it is trying to update superhero origin stories and you know update with great power must come great responsibility this particular moment is just a rough miss walking of the path for a minute and for me the first misstep is the first moment i do not like that issue zero opens up on spider-man and just to kind of paint a weird picture that really does trace a lot of why we've done what we've done the point we're talking about is spider-man would have been a dad if his child hadn't sadly passed away and he's a a married man and he is a scientist and a professor not just some young guy taking pictures for a newspaper and why is he drawn like he's being played like by Callista Flockhart on this panel he is a the skinniest boy on the first page of Slingers and so I don't know why he's starting the book and then why visually the interpretation of him is so slight when we're supposed to be thinking of these guys as the young new heroes conceptually this book wants Spider-Man to be such a legend that these people took his cast off costumes and created entire superhero identities off of them but it comes off like he's like this weird little scurrying like tiny voyeur of this moment where you know the same thing happened they did take his cast off costume so like you know, they should be seeing him as larger than life. And on the one hand, they kind of do. But on the other hand, he's in and around this story. Yeah, looking really small. And not that anybody can't look small, but it's just the way it presents itself on page and visually with how he appears, rather than giving this image of like Spider-Man as the ideal, which is really conceptually what the book is trying to tell you it's doing. The image that it evokes when you see him is like weird pervert predator skulking along the outskirts of this story watching some teenagers right exactly that's that's there's the pervert part right there I also think it's really telling that when we transition over to the team, this first page really goes out of its way to make no use of Dusk, such that when she's introduced in the next page, which I'm fine with, you know, the way they have her framed such that she's the first character to get a full decent splash, and something about the angling is really lovely. There's a visual quality to it that I can appreciate, so I'm not all like they did her dirty but I do feel that there's kind of an effort to uncelebrate her from the team. And it bothers me because in a book where there is only one female character, and in many ways, while I know a lot of these characters do have clear struggles, there's only one character that perhaps experiences othering and shows signs of sort of psychological wear and tear as a result of an unfair Marvel universe. It's just unfortunate that she really 
really is like off in a corner somewhere. If it wasn't 1998 and I wasn't already aware of the influences, there might be some woman being forced to cover her entire body and face with her outfit things that I might want to get into. But I don't think the intention is anything like that. I, I just think you couldn't sell me this same costume today. I'll put it that way. It does. It is actually like there's something very cool about it. It's just I think unfortunately both the othering that you mentioned, which is more a result of like it's just three dudes that are in competition with each other because they're all actually college classmates that come from three kind of different walks of life. She's just the other one, not because she's even a woman, but because like she just is having a very different experience than them. But between that and the fact that she is fully covered, I can see the intentions. I think if it had been published two years later, they would read a little differently. I think if they were published today, it would read differently. And I just wouldn't do it again. But she she's a cool character design underneath her blackout costume. You know, I love her nose connected to earring chain situation and her eye makeup. There's something very draggy about her. She really is like if goth were an ethnic heritage, this would be a 100% goth girl. And I love that for her. She's real weird. I, oh, I wish they hadn't <laughs> thrown her off a building in issue zero. And I love that you like her eye makeup because especially on a page like what is page six, uh, where we really get that first interlocking sort of grid page. I just think she looks like a Chris Boccolo design. I think it looks like she's deaf and this panel framing is from one of the death minis. And I'm going to go on a limb and say it. I think the connecting nose earring piece makes her look like Janet Jackson in the runaway video. <laughs> None of this is like we should all emulate her and think about her constantly but they are really big swing choices that both feel like yeah take fucking big swings and also they feel like things a goth girl this age would do that then if this was a character that was able to establish 20 further years of Marvel history she would have grown out of that design because that character believably would have aged up but also like by this point a an actual woman woman would have done some of her character work artistically and uh, in writing. And so to start from here, even though there's a lot about it that isn't good, it's not good in an authentic way that I, I really do appreciate. And there is something very powerful about the visual imagery that I think is part of where that authenticity comes from. The issue zero bothers me for like an actual lot of reasons. It should not have been a freebie and wizard it's literally required for anything in the series to make sense yep. that dusk dies this issue is the focal point of the series and putting it in this zero is so disappointing but once we get to the first page that doesn't focus on dusk again we get such a beautiful physique shot of prodigy i'm just really shocked by the left facing visual like left facing isn't common in comics so I'm shocked by the left facing and then that ricochet panel. <laughs> it, oh my God. What a fucking 
faggot, slim, <laughs> bitch, boy, queen. Uh, what a uh, give her everything she wants. But it gets so jacket. much worse than that. <laughs> I mean, and then that one panel where, like, literally, it looks like Ricochet is trying to wind up a fastball into his own. I don't know how to explain it, but X marked cooch. <laughs> he really is trying to show hole. Like it's, yes. I mean, like right here. This is where you want to go, sir. But yeah, just like thin waist with a big behind. I just, I, I don't know what to do with Ricochet. It's the same thing as Dust, though. Big swings. They're nonsense. <laughs> They're really campy. And unfortunately, the I mean, like, they both kind of don't work because, like, this dude should be gay. And this goth girl should not kill herself. Like, they're they're just, like, you, you have these character setups that don't continue the way they ought to. But that is the blessing and curse of this issue zero. Like, it is really, really cool. But what we're talking about is the fact that no Nobody fucking saw this. So all of the coolness is uh, mitigated by the fact that this required reading was not read. And the drama is so 90s. It's hard for me to understand how this came out the third issue of Spider-Girls same month. There is an impossibility to believing that we should think that these characters are just three years older than Mayday and her crew. That is shocking to me because these characters are so much more mature and yet have no further mature concerns. They don't feel like college students by virtue of concept of responsibility, which is the whole tagline of the book again, but they feel like college students because they're, I don't know, bigger. I sort of feel like, I think they do sort of feel like college students. I was a college student in New York uh, in just a few years after this and there's something very recognizable about the fact that these are kids most especially Hornet and Ricochet they are legally maybe children uh, legally maybe adults but they are just kids they have no idea what they're doing I love how that plays into them deciding that they should be superheroes I love that for Hornet there is a feeling of overcoming disability and there is a struggle with his real life lived experience body versus his superhero body there's also a very weird visual thing happening with him that I have to point out where he has the worst goatee that that feels so correctly like a terrible choice that an 18 year old would make in 1998, but that his Hornet costume lines up with that and covers up the facial hair is a really weird choice. I mean, basically like what I'm getting at is that Hornet is really cool. Eddie sort of sucks. And on top of that, Eddie is struggling with the fact that he has a physical disability that he is overcoming as Hornet. So there's a degree to which he wants to be hornet because hornet is cooler and i can get that and then that he wants to be hornet because that helps him not feel disabled and i want better for him in life but i can absolutely understand where he's coming from with that as somebody who has a disability myself i it's just a very interesting play on what it feels like to be able to overcome a disability and how that can feel like 
the non-disabled version of you is the better version. And when there are some ways in which non-disabled version is cooler, that's understandable. And that is a real struggle. You know, as a, another member of this conversation who also struggles with disabilities, I do feel like the version of me I put out there is the big jacked gym dude and not any of the sometimes my body is just shutting down and weak stuff. And I get always wanting to project the superhero. And I don't know Joe Harris or Chris Cross. And so I can't speak for their experience. But I feel in many ways, perhaps as though it reads like the disability is a weight around his neck, not an opportunity to overcome something. I think that is the problem, is that everything is set up to tell a story where it is not just a weight around his neck, but something that, you know, he's overcoming something bigger than, so much bigger than his disability by engaging with assistive technology. He is learning to love himself by engaging with assistive technology. The setup is there to do that story and then it just unfortunately just doesn't do it and it really becomes this nerd is cooler in his superhero identity and that is a tough swallow for this dude because he's not just a nerd who's cooler in his superhero identity. He is a disabled person whose disability is fixed by his superhero identity and all of those all the elements are really cool setup for good storytelling and I think we would today expect that they would put somebody on the book who has experience with disability and who would be able to tell a story about somebody who loves their assistive technology but isn't defined by the ever presence of it or made less by the lack of it and we're just not there yet in terms of what we expect for writers and what people are generally prone to do in a story in 1998 when this is coming out. There's also a lot of we're just sort of still shrugging at comics to the plot and the treatment of the characters at this point. I think this whole let's jump from building to building thing that there's an initiation, right? There's an element of this that does kind of read like hazing. Yes. And they kind of haze a girl to death. Yeah. And I feel as though if we were to change the context that they were out trying to catch a prowler and she fell during a, a routine prowl check or whatever. That would play a lot better, but this story beat that she ultimately falls victim to the cruel supervillain of gravity is also <laughs> kind of disappointing because she's not a character that feels like she would immediately fall and die. Even from this, there's something about her that reads more than that. So it's a sort of weird catch-22. It was a cool idea that fit other cool ideas at the time that were doing similar things. But because of that, it maybe feels like this was just a little too late for it to be a really cool idea that didn't tell us everything. Yeah, this is the wrong time for this. Like I said, if this had been told in even the 80s, but like the 50s through the 70s, she would have made the leap. Like the book would have, it would have been the whole issue would have been like, can she do it? And people in 
encourage her or something else comes up and eventually she learns she can do it. And I mean, the other thing, and if it were today, we would really examine this as like a moment of peer pressure that we identify as being problematic and she overcomes it and teaches them all a lesson. And we really address that this is a weird thing that they're like, you can't sit with us unless you can make this leap. And on top of all of that, there is an element to which I think what is supposed to be happening is that she can feel these powers that she has that are associated with the negative zone that sort of let her blink in and out of space and are going to come in full force for the rest of this book. I think the idea is that she is feeling those and steps off because in with her powers at full force, she doesn't really need to leap. She can just kind of be on the other side. She could fall off a building and blink herself to safety. And so I, she, because what happens is she fucking walks off. She does not try to leap. She says one, two, and walks off of the fucking ledge and dies. And I think the idea is that her powers are supposed to work. But because she is a goth girl who looks super sad and is dressed in all black, it just seems like a sad goth girl killed herself and then comes back from the dead with superpowers. I really do see it is the thing that I've repeatedly said, and I'll say more throughout this. I see the elements that they put out there so that the readers could see and say, this, these are the toys we're going to play with, with relation to these characters. But then some of the execution just like they take a wrong move, but it's a really big wrong move. And I think even peer pressuring her to jump and her not making the jump would not be great, but she just fucking steps off the ledge and dies. And that's real, real weird. Which leads me to ask, was issue zero always part of the story? Or were they... Because like this is where I get a little tripped up. This unnatural formatting, and I'm calling it unnatural, not insultingly, but it's really not normal that you would have four versions of issue one and a hard-to-find issue zero that is required reading for issue one to make sense. Was this originally six issues? Was this the first arc? And did they say, what if we go through the whole first arc in one issue? And then they said, oh, you know what? We need another 13 pages. Hey, we're doing those issue zeros with Wizard, and we've got a Spider-Girl one, and we've done all of these other ones. Hey, let's do that. And in which case, maybe then, there would have been a period of time where everything was happy and good, and this team made sense. Because my struggle is, without issue zero, there is literally no splash of the team together until issue 10 or 11. And there's not really any moment where they are a team like from the start of the issue ones one of them is dead and one of them is in an antagonistic relationship with the other two who are friends like they're buddies which is cool but it's not a buddy book there's supposed to be four of them they're supposed to be a team and through issue six that really it doesn't cohere in a superhero comic book way there are a couple times where it coheres in a like the movie magnolia way where it's like all these disparate elements came together in this one scene and technically they all helped to save the day but they're not functioning as a team they're functioning as a byproduct of chance in comic book storytelling very cool but we just never get there we never get to the point that we're at when this story starts and this issue zero where these four people are like 
we want to be superheroes together. So we're left with this issue zero that kills off a main character that then becomes the central focus of the first of four issues. And I don't know how I feel about the fact that there's four different issue ones that follow this. From a storytelling point of view, the idea that these four issue ones, these four different experiences follow this particular experience. It's a really tough thing to put all together and feel confident with as storytelling because where I'm confused is who are the slingers? Is Dusk one of the slingers? Who is the leader? Is it Prodigy? Or is Prodigy a separate character who sort of cruelly stands around this group of clearly three kind of reality bites interwoven (laughs) friends? And then beyond that, it also feels in many ways like Ricochet is the outsider because he could have been a hero anyway. This is just a convenient way to do it. Maybe Hornet's the outsider because he sees himself as differently abled and thus lesser in the context of 1998 superhero comics. Is this a team or is this four people who share a title? And I love asking that question in the first issue, first couple issues of a standard book where, you know, you could just buy issue one with all of the introductory information at the comic shop and then answer that through the next few issues. But because of this crazy formatting, I think we start off with a, this is a team. And then that's issue zero that nobody read. And then we go into issue one and this is a murder mystery about people in costumes. And we're kind of gesturing at the idea that uh, asking the question, is this a team? But if we're not aware that they were at one point, it's just a really shaky place to start from. But, uh, you know, I again, the, the pieces are on the board. Like we there's there was a way to do this where we could have been asking that question and then answering it at the end of the first arc if we wanted and then doing a second arc where yes the answer is yes they are a team here's them as a team or maybe it's you know the first arc is yes they're a team the second arc is can they come together as one and then you know by issue 12 we have answered that and then where do we go from there question mark but it really is just not not even a question that the writers are posing to the world it's a question that we are left asking because we are confused about the elements that are on page. And what's funny is I see so many parallels between this and like early-ish MC2. I think in many ways Dusk kind of reminds me of Raptor. You know, kind of like, oh, it's hard. Things are edgy for me. You know. And you previously made a comparison between Hornet and Buzz. I think there is something to be said for kind of like Prodigy and Dark Devil. Somebody who seemingly has this outside force manipulating them making them seem uneven and then funny enough yeah ricochet just is spider girl because she's the cool one that we care about <laughs> that the gays love uh, that the so, gays love also like that was so that was the other thing we didn't get to because we kind of went around it but him on the ledge doing the handstand with his tightest butt cheeks in history standing proud he just he reads so gay and really his mutant metaphor comes off as such a queer metaphor 
before. And, you know, there's even a point later where he's going to be like, I think I'm that thing. It's that word that starts with M. And if that isn't something that you as a like teenager at this age, remember kind of trying to say to somebody, you know, I, you are either not I, gay or you are not a millennial. Hey guys, I'm, I'm trying to tell you I'm a, I'm a faggot. <laughs> exactly. I think it's that thing that starts with F that we've all been calling each other that we think would be a death sentence if we actually were. I am that. And I'm terrified that you all hate me. Listen, we've all been there. But Macklemore thinks it's okay. So he thinks it's, it's okay. fine. So we're good. We're good. That's that. See, there you go. That is a very like you are a very young millennial or Gen Z. If you just have the Macklemore experience of like, no, it was just fine. In 1998, we were fucking terrified. And Ricochet pulls that off so well. He really just does stuff that seems gay and is just gay aesthetic. The mask has like a, a pup play hood aesthetic choice to it there's there's a bondage it's just it's all really really gay and it's so unfortunate that they specifically go out of their way to insert a female love interest that is like two panels worth of content but it does really clearly state that like this is a girl that he likes i just i wish we could have disposed of that entirely only because i would have been so happy to keep this one coded really queer and then let Left overtly ambiguous. The thing that I'm most excited about exploring with this series is do each of these characters in some way represent the spider totem? And, you know, I've, I've read the whole thing at this point. I've read all what is functionally 16 issues, somehow 12 issues of 16, <laughs> go figure. And I can say I would, one of them, one of them is vaguely spider Manzy. One of them, maybe. And the rest of them just fail the totem test. They are so involved with being products of their era. They are so about their own zeitgeist that they sort of miss the point of the assignment. Now, if the assignment is what is Spider-Man in the year 1998 and how is he a bad bastard boy? You got it. But if the assignment was with great power comes great responsibility and Spidey's at the heart of it, these characters are too self-obsessed to save the world and they really don't ever save anything or anyone that they are not in some way responsible for and I'm really excited to talk about the ways in which this is a beautiful mess. This really is, unlike Spider-Girl, which was a messy you know, success, this is a beautiful failure. There's a financial failure, for sure. That just happens. Um, This book just doesn't sell well. And I think there's the failure of the characters that I believe is intentional and partially a success on the part of the creative team. I We're going to really delve into this as we go through the actual story, but I do think that Spider Totem, no. But with great power must come great responsibility. Fantastic interaction with that adage and that belief. And not that they get it right, but that certainly Ricochet and Hornet, Eddie and Johnny really think that that's a thing thing and that they are they want to try and live up to it prodigy i 
Prodigy's a weird one. Like he wants to live up to it too, but like he's clearly it's clearly that thing. It's the like the Punisher thing of like I'll kill to uh, like be greatly responsible, and then somebody's like that's not very responsible to murder people to do the right thing, weirdo. And then one of us is goth. Like <laughs> always comes back to just I don't know. She's goth. Um, but really, I love the idea of interacting with that specifically. With with great power must come great responsibility because there is more to spider-man than that there's more to being a spider totem there's more to being the daughter of spider-man there's more to being spider woman there's more to the spider identity than that adage but that is incredibly important and just putting characters in interaction with that is a really cool idea and not a financial success and i don't think the characters are successful at upholding the idea that with great power comes great responsibility but i think the book is successful at interacting with the idea and letting readers really think about it from other angles that will become important to understanding all superheroes especially spider adjacent ones and understanding the marvel universe as a whole as it's going to like progress for the next 25 years okay so i really want to interact with that immediately so my statement had been because these characters fail the totem test theoretically this is a failure though i think this is just a failure for like other reasons as well like there's failings to this yeah but to interact with what you're saying then there's a second level to test on which is does the character's failure tell us something that we can grow from because i think we said throughout spider-verse that there were a number of characters that passed the spider totem you know the spider totem test that at the same time didn't tell us anything new about spiderdom whereas these characters failing that same test tells us a lot about spiderdom like that wretched little jessica drew child from mc2 that becomes spider-man completely like very clearly a spider person tells us nothing sucks let's forget that character ever happened but like that's a spider-man for the mc2 like that that happened these people not spider people do not represent spider people but they tell us a lot about what it means to get there by virtue of what they do and don't get right man i love that and that makes me so excited to take a look at the 12 issues of slingers it's really funny because we're going to need to spend a lot of time on issue one then we're going to need to spend a bunch of time on two through five unfortunately the series very quickly seems to suffer from cancellation syndrome and by issue six you can you're just it's a straight shot to the end and i feel there's less content in six through 12 than there is in one through five and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because i think it's going to take like three hours to talk about the amount of things they managed to get in four versions of issue one because i don't know that i've ever had like a choose your own adventure style comic that was all canon like this it's it's really hard to talk about and i wonder you know as we talk about how much format plays this is this is clearly so many episodes i can't wait it's complex and really cool and really like campy and silly too like we're getting kind of all the best stuff with this. I'm very glad that you found it. It's everything that we're really talking about with pulling in all of these, what I think are easily dismissed, like forgotten pieces from, you know, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. There's a lot of little like attempts like this. And I really do think if you want to get into comics as a reader and as a creative, really delving into these things actually is worth it. Even if you decide like, this is not going to be the thing 
that I carry with me for the rest of my life. This is not, you know, I don't need this like slabbed, bagged and boarded at like quality 9.6 because it's the most important thing to come out of the Marvel Universe. But like this was a worthwhile read to me as a writer, as a reader of comics. This really was a worthwhile read to me. And I can't wait to come back and talk about these 12 issues. And until then, TK, where can everybody find you slanging it online? You find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And you can find me at my house working on my white hair dye job and my uh, full face mask for my Ricochet cosplay for Comic-Con 2023 because sadly I missed 2022. You can find both of us on this show all the fucking time covering all your favorite Marvel books, old and new, as well as over on the Hubs Plus Network, our partner YouTube channel where you can find the Billy Club, my and Tori Sheehan's deep dive into the Daredevil universe alongside any news and television appearances of everyone's favorite Crimson Crusader. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. You can find my original work over at KidRiotComics.com as well as in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology. Super proud to be part of that. And don't forget you can check out this show at X's for Podcast and at X's for Podcast.com and at X's for Podcast on Twitter. And until next time, when I guess we sling slang more slunging, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember to steal all of Spider-Man's old costumes. And we'll see you. 